waiting for my light. Um, we all have strengths and preferences. We have things that we enjoy, that we feel like we're really good at, that we feel confident in. And then we have the things that we don't feel so great at. We don't feel so confident. We feel kind of our weaknesses. And this morning as we begin, I want to kind of help you get your mind wrapped around what some of those strengths and preferences might be. So this is going to be a little bit of interaction. I don't need you to talk to your neighbor or say anything out loud. We're just going to raise hands. So uh, first one, if you are right-handed, would you raise your right hand? And if you are left-handed, would you raise your left hand? Stop judging all of us who aren't as cool as you. You know, I've found that left-handers have kind of a complex. Um, you are more creative. It is scientifically proven. Um, if you're an introvert, would you raise your hand? You, you, you get your energy from being away from people. Extroverts, raise your hand. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the ones that woo, you know. Um, <laughs> when, when it comes to a trip, are, are you a planner? Like you're packed a month before you leave? And then are you the kind of person maybe who packs an hour before you leave? You're spontaneous. <laughs> are you the kind of person, raise your hand, who reads the book or watches the movie? Okay. Uh, are you the kind of person who calls the person or are you the person who texts the person? Okay, yeah. It's funny. There's lots of people who are not young who are in that second group right there. So just want you to know it's not just young people who like to text. You see, we like to spend most of our time in our strengths and our preferences. If you're right-handed, you don't spend a lot of time writing thank you notes left-handed. Uh, if you are an introvert, you're not looking to pack your weekend with lots of parties and social engagements. We like to spend our time in our strengths and our preferences. And the opposite of this is true that we avoid spending time on the weaker and the uncomfortable parts. We don't really engage those as much. And, and that makes sense when it comes to the hands that you write with. It makes sense with how you plan your time. It makes sense with what you do in terms of how you engage people. But what's interesting is that we often import this same approach into our relationship with God. We tend to stay in the areas or stay in the, the habits that we feel comfortable and confident in or maybe the parts of ourselves, our stories, our experiences that we feel comfortable or confident in, and we avoid engaging the weaker and the more uncomfortable parts. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus invites us to bring all of who we are to him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, those things that you're good at, I want those, and I'm sorry the things you're bad at, we're just going to have to leave those aside. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I want the good parts of your story, the good parts of your past, bring me those. But those kind of broken parts, those parts that are maybe, you maybe feel some sense of shame or regret over, just kind of hold those, you know, and don't give those to me. The good news is Jesus invites us to bring all of who we are to him. He wants to have a relationship with all of us, and the good news is that he can use all of that. So today we're starting a series that's called All of You. And here's the big idea for both today and the series. You're going to hear this enough that hopefully you'll, you can repeat it by the end of this month. Following Jesus requires all of you, and it transforms all of you. If you've got a copy of the handout, you can fill those blanks in and take notes. But this is, for some of you, going to be a radical idea. It may not be a radical idea intellectually, but it certainly will be a radical idea, like, functionally. Because some of you are like, yeah, I know God wants all of me, but, 
but functionally you don't engage all those parts of you. You, you, don't, you don't bring all those to bear every day. And so what we're going to see in this series is that if we're going to follow Jesus, he requires us to bring all of those to him. And what he wants to do is he wants to transform and use all those places in us. So there's a place in Scripture that we're going to be at for the next four or five weeks in this series. It's in the book of Mark, chapter 12. So if I hope you brought your Bible this morning. I'd encourage you to, to open it up or turn it on, however you engage your Bible, whether it's an analog one or a digital one. Mark is the second of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. We call them Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke is kind of where you're going to find Mark today. And, and what, as you turn there, I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up. We're going to walk through this series over the next five weeks. I'll be with you for the first four weeks. And then if you can remember back in February, I announced that I'm going on sabbatical this summer. So the fifth week of this series will be the first week of my sabbatical. So I want to encourage you, I'm taking a sabbatical. The church is not taking a sabbatical. Um, so I will not be here. I'm going to be getting some, some rest and some renewal over the summer. But we're going to continue to press on through the end of this series. And then starting in late May, we're going to jump into the book of First John. And we're going to be in First John all throughout the summer. So we spent kind of the first part of this year in the Old Testament. We were in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Genesis. We're kind of going New Testament for the second part of the year. Uh, but I'm really excited for what this series is going to include and this phrase here that's the subtitle, learning to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that language comes from this text we're going to look at right now, Mark chapter 12. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read this morning, as we honor God's word? Our friend Jacob, if you don't have a Bible, we'll keep you going here on the screen. So beginning in verse 28, this is what Jesus speaks. It says, one of the scribes approached Jesus. When he heard them debating and he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God and no one dared to question him any longer. Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be open, our eyes would be open, and that we would really truly see what it is that you're saying to us. We pray that we would bring all of who we are into relationship with you, that you would transform all that we are, and that you would also use all that we are as we seek to follow you in this season. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now this morning, what I'm going to try to do, and this is a little bit of an introduction week to this series, I want to share with you three important lessons from this passage, which is called the Great Commandment. And the first important lesson we got to understand as we start this out is first that Jesus affirms the continuing relevance of the Old Testament. 
Jesus affirms the continuing relevance of the Old Testament. He didn't call it the Old Testament. That was a, a phrase that was, you know, originated later. But, but what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, what, what the people in his day called the law and the prophets, Jesus was continually affirming the relevance of. And this is really important to understand because the Bible was not originally written to you. Some of you, that's maybe a shocking thing. But, but the Bible was not directed to you as a 21st century American. It was written to an original audience that was largely Hebrew and then Greek. And so the people listening in that day were not wearing nice hiking boots that they'd been out on the Peavine this weekend and they were, you know, hiking. They, they were written to people who likely wore sandals, whose feet were dirty, who were people who lived hundreds and thousands of years before us. So we have to understand how people in that day would have heard this because Jesus wasn't speaking to us first. He was speaking to them. Now, the Bible has huge relevance for us today, but it's not written to us originally. That's why it's so important to understand context. And so if you were sitting there when Mark 12 happened and this scribe who was somebody who copied down the Bible because it was all handwritten, there was no Xerox machines or emails. When this scribe came and asked this question of Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded with what we just read, you would have instantly thought of something. Now, you probably didn't think of this because you didn't grow up Jewish, the majority of you. But to the audience in that day, it would have immediately recalled something. What it would have recalled is Deuteronomy 6, what's called the Shema, where it says, listen, Israel, and this is Moses speaking and delivering a message from God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your whole, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Hebrews would have recited this every morning and every evening, every day for their entire life. Would have been the, the phrase or the language that they were most familiar with. Continues, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you go along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This phrase, when they heard it and Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, they would go, oh, he's talking about the Shema. Oh, I guess for Jesus, this is still relevant. This is still important. And this was significant because one of the complaints or the criticisms that Jesus got was that Jesus was trying to get rid of the law, that Jesus was anti-law and prophets. But he's really clear in Matthew 5. Jesus said it here. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing to a culmination all of the things that have been building for hundreds of years maybe thousands of years. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises that the prophets had talked about. And, and Paul kind of summarizes this in Galatians 3. He says, the law then was our guardian, uh, our, our caretaker, our, our, um, our babysitter in some ways, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is, is I'm connecting the Shema to what I'm teaching. I'm, I'm drawing the Old Testament into the New, and he's connecting these two passages of Scripture. So, so Mark 12 and Deuteronomy 6 are like connected. And, and the Bible term that we use for this is a cross-reference. 
a cross-reference. It's, it's kind of like a hyperlink. You ever go on your phone, there's a little blue, you know, underline, and you tap that, and it opens up another website. It's called a hyperlink. Well, these are present in the Bible, but they're not like you can tap them unless you have a digital Bible. But if you're in a physical Bible and you're like, Scott, why isn't it working? You know, it's not like that. But a cross-reference connects two parts of the Bible together. And according to one set of researchers, there are 63,779 links like this in the Bible. That's a lot of links. And it shows us that there is incredible relevance between the Old and New Testament. Now, I found something a couple weeks ago when I was scrolling through Instagram reels. Not always the place for deep revelation, but, but I was there and I found this amazing thing and I saved it because I knew some of you would love it. These two researchers who also have a, a, a bent for graphic design love the Bible. And they said, how do we illustrate how connected the Bible is? And so they created this. This is a visualization of the 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. Each of these loops goes from, like, if we're here, so this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like, the link would be right here all the way over to, like, right here. The, the little things in the bottom are books of the Bible. The longest line, that's Psalm 119, which is both the longest chapter in the Bible and the chapter of the Bible with the most cross-references. But this is what Jesus was, I think, trying to communicate, that there is continuing relevance from the Old Testament into the New Testament. That what Jesus was doing wasn't just kind of starting over and nothing that happened before him was relevant. He was saying all of these things that have been taught, I'm the fruition of, I'm the fulfillment of, I'm the culmination of. So don't just throw it out, but you have to understand it in light of me. Now, for those of you that I've already watched, try to take a, a picture with your camera phone. You can get a copy of this image at prescottcornerstone.com slash sermon hyphen resources. So for those of you that are like Bible nerds, there's your freebie for today. But I share this with you, not because I think it's a cool nerd moment, but because of how we tend to read the Bible. Many of you today would say, hey, I believe that God inspired all of the Bible. And if I got up today and I was like, I think God inspired part, but not all, I probably would finish this message, but not preach the next one. You know, like that's just kind of how things would go. But here's the thing. We believe that all of the Bible is inspired, but there's a big but coming. We tend to only hang out in certain sections of the Bible. Lots of us have, have been given those little Gideon Bibles, you know, New Testaments, and it's Matthew through Revelation with Psalms and Proverbs. And I'm not anti-Gideons. I love the Gideons. I've got friends who come to Christ through the Gideons. But many of us functional Bible is like the Gideon's Bible. We read a little bit of Genesis, we do Psalms and Proverbs, and then we jump all the way into Matthew through Revelation. And if we believe that all of this was inspired by God, and if Jesus is drawing on this, then is it possible that maybe we need to step back and go, am I really engaging all of God's word? Am I really engaging all that God said? You see, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us that the Old Testament is still relevant but we need to interpret it in light of what he did. And so Jesus, as he begins to teach what is the most important commandment, first and foremost, he's saying, hey, the Old Testament is still relevant because the greatest commandment has its origin all the way back there.
That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. Jesus wants a holistic relationship with his creation. Jesus wants a holistic relationship with his creation. The word holistic means full, complete, whole. He wants a relationship with all of us. And we see this in Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bible still open, go back to Mark 12, verse 30. This is the first part of what we call the great commandment. Here Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, I don't know if you're somebody who has ever memorized the Bible. In that long section, that long line, Psalm 119, one of the lines that I remember memorizing in there was, was hiding God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God. So I was taught at a young age to memorize God's word. And so I want to challenge you. This series is going to last about 30 days. I want to challenge you to memorize that verse, Mark 12, 30. To love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And, and to help you understand why that's important, I want to help you understand what these words mean. Because, again, the, the, there's a difference in worldview that's present in their world versus our world. They are going to use these words in some ways differently than we are. And I want you to understand what they mean. And so if you've got a copy of the handout, you can kind of write some, some notes here. In that day, the heart represented the will or the drive of a person. The heart was the thing that pushed you to do something. It's, we still have this a little bit in our language where we say, hey, that was kind of a half-hearted effort. Or, you know what, my heart just wasn't in it. I don't have the heart to keep going. That's where they use that. Now, we, we use heart to mean other things too, and we'll get to that in a second. But for them, the heart was the will or the drive of a person. The soul was the emotions or feelings of a person. It was similar to spirit. And it was all of those positive and negative emotions, all of those feelings, which, by the way, if you're anti-emotional, if you're like, I just don't do emotions, then what you're doing is you're missing on something God made. Every emotion you've ever had was first founded in the imagination of God. So to be anti-feelings or anti-emotional is to reject something that God made and God gave you. Now, there are ways to, to see that go destructively, sinfully, and be driven by emotion. I'm, I'm not going that direction. I'm just saying don't reject what God created. The third thing is the mind. And the mind is the intellect, the attitude, or the temperament, the, the personality Loving God with your mind, we'll see in this series, means we bring to bear all of our thoughts, all of our reflections, all of our mental cognitive abilities, our personality. And then there's strength. Your strength are your abilities, your powers, or the force of your body. To love God with your strength means you take seriously that God made our bodies, that God inhabited a body, still inhabits a body today, by the way. Jesus is still in a body today in heaven. And we, we bring our strength to bear. And that's why the big idea of this series and this message is that following Jesus requires all of you and it transforms all of you because what Jesus is saying in the great commandment is heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all of who we are. So if we're going to love God with all that we are, that's going to require all that we are. And here's where the problem comes in. Here's the tension of this message and this series. Are you loving God with part of you 
bless you, or all of you. When you think about your relationship with God, are you loving God with everything that's you? The strengths and the weaknesses? The preferences and the discomforts? The things you feel good at, the things you don't feel good at, the things that you're proud of and not proud of, the things you want everyone to see, the things you want no one to see? Or are you loving God with all of you? And and I'll go first. I grew up in an environment that I'm not sure helped me to do this well. I grew up going to a Baptist church. There was not a Sunday that we didn't pull this out, the Baptist hymnal. We, we always sang verses first, first verse, second verse, fourth verse. Why we skipped the third stands on every song, I don't know, but it just seemed to happen every Sunday. And, and I loved my childhood experience. We were at church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. My dad was there on Monday night for visitation. Sometimes he'd be there on Thursday night, you know, like... We would just go. My parents would say, hey, we're going to church. Okay, go. And the, my kids on Friday last week for Good Friday, it's like, hey, we're going to church. Why? It's Friday. We're going to church on Friday. You know, I'm like, you, you're having a different childhood than I had, you know? And so I loved, I loved my experience. So much of it shaped me to be who I am today. But here's the thing. I grew up in an environment that helped me love God with my mind, but I don't feel like I got as much help loving God with my soul. In that experience, if you wanted to grow, it was take another class, learn more information, show up at church more, read your Bible more, pray more. None of those are bad things. But, but all of the pieces about loving God with my emotions and my feelings, I didn't get anything. Or at least I don't remember getting a whole lot to help equip me for that. So as I started getting into my teens and all certain all feelings are coming out of me and emotions are happening in me, and I'm like, what do I do with this? I don't feel like I got equipped to love God with my soul the way I got equipped to love God with my mind. And because I like to do things like you that I feel strong and comfortable in, I spend a lot of my time loving God with my mind and not a lot of time loving God with my soul until I started feeling some emotions that I couldn't push away, that I couldn't process. And I realized that God wanted me to love him with all of me. So I was going to have to start developing parts of me and asking God to engage parts of me that, that I just never touched. See, many of us tend to have areas where we feel strong and comfortable and areas where we feel weak and uncomfortable. And what I want for you is I don't want you to experience what I did and wake up one day. You know what? I love God with this part of me. But I don't love God with this part of me. And here's my, here's my hypothesis. I'm not 100% right with everything that I believe as hypothesis. But this is based upon almost 20 years of serving in churches. My experience is if you look at that list, heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's probably one or two things on that list that you feel strong in. And there's probably one or two things that you don't feel strong in. And my belief is, is that you probably spend your time on the one or two things you do feel strong in, and you avoid the one or two things you don't feel strong in. And when we do that, here's what we end up looking like. We look like the guy who always does chest and arms and back and never does legs. You see that guy in the gym, right? You know, who's all upper body, no lower body? It's like, dude, go squat. 
Do some deadlifts. Like, you need to use those, those tiny stick legs you have. Some of us, this is what we look like spiritually. We're really good at loving God with our mind. But loving God with our heart and our soul, there's not a whole lot of development there. And so what happens is that we're not bringing all of us to God or experiencing God transforming all of us. We're only transforming part. And if you're like, Scott, I'm not sure what, what that means for me or, or where that lands for me. Maybe it's not readily apparent. You might need the presence or, or insight of somebody else to help identify where you're avoiding. You might have to say to somebody, hey, what do you think for me when you interact with me? Maybe it's a, a spouse or a close friend. You might need somebody to help you get into that. But for those of you who are seeing clearly, you're like, yeah, I know where I tend to go and I know where I tend to avoid and, and maybe as you're thinking about the areas you tend to avoid, you're like, Scott, but that's really uncomfortable. Like, I don't do feelings. I don't do that emotional stuff. Or maybe you're like, Scott, I love the feelings part, but man, you start using big theological words and you went to seminary. I don't feel comfortable in that kind of environment. I'm just going to kind of stay where I'm comfortable. Or, hey, I don't like talking about my faith. I like living my faith. So, Service project, I'm in. Small group discussion, I'm out. Just because I'm uncomfortable. Here's the hard truth. And I'm going to say this because I love you and I care about you. The level to which you allow God to make you uncomfortable is the level to which you allow God to bring growth in your life. Your Max out, I can't go farther because I'd be too uncomfortable, is the lid for your growth. You could say your capacity for discomfort is your capacity for growth. And all too often, subtly, silently, unintentionally, we wake up and find ourselves in, one, in a place one day where we are far too comfortable. And what God has to do to help us to grow is begin to nudge us into discomfort. And in my experience, you get one of two choices. Either you can pursue the discomfort or God can drive you into the discomfort. It's the same thing that First Peter says. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. Or watch God humble you because God's opposed to the proud. Plan A is humble yourself. Plan B is God humbles you. I've lived both. Choose plan A. <laughs> plan A is choose discomfort, embrace discomfort. Plan B is have discomfort pushed on you. So before we give you the next week to process some of this, before we dive into the first part of this commandment, I want to give you number three which is this, Jesus warns us against external acts of righteousness without the internal presence of love. Jesus warns us against external acts of righteousness without the internal presence of love. Multiple gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will record similar teachings or similar um, moments in the life of Jesus. And, and this passage that we have here in Mark 12 also shows up in Matthew 22. Same, same thing, same moment, same conversation. 
And what's happening right before this passage in Mark 12 and Matthew 22 is that Jesus is taking, uh, you know, verbal attack from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, these group of religious leaders. And they're asking him all sorts of questions. And so this scribe asks him a question in, in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, and then we just read it from Mark 12. And when Jesus answers this question, the passage ends there, and it says they didn't ask him any more questions. Because finally he shows, hey, like, you're not going to win with the gotcha questions. But right after that moment happens, Jesus has some very harsh and direct words for the Pharisees. If you have your Bible still open or if it's on, go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. So again, this is the context of the same event we just read from Mark. It's just in a different um, section in Matthew 23. And here's what Matthew 23 says, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you to do and observe it. But listen to this. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. Follow their authority. It's given to them by God, but don't do what they do. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. Now go down to verse 25. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Harsh, intense, critical words. And, and I don't think it's an accident that these warnings in Matthew 23 come right on the heels of Jesus' words in Matthew 22. I think that context is giving us some indicator of what Jesus is trying to say here. He's talking about this Shema that all of these Pharisees would have known. All of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they knew the greatest commandment was to love God with all you are. And on the surface... Loving God, loving people, that seems pretty simple. But many of you know this. Loving God and loving people may seem simple, but it is not easy. You're like, yeah, Scott, there's some people in my life. They are not easy to love. And loving God with all of me, including those places that I don't feel strong or I don't feel confident with, that's not easy. And this is because simple doesn't equal easy. Sometimes I'll tell people, hey, well, this is, this is fairly simple. And they're like, no, no, you're saying it's easy. I said, no, I'm not. I'm saying it's simple. How do you lose weight? You take in less calories than you burn and you exercise. That's simple. But all of us know that is not easy. How do you build a healthy relationship? 
You spend time with somebody, you have hard conversations, you love them sacrificially. How many of us know that's not easy? And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, guys, this is simple. Don't just care about the outside of the cup. Care about the inside of the cup. You've all had those cups that you forgot were in the car. And then you found them four days later in the summer and it smelled like a science experiment gone bad. Something died in there. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He's like, you are like that cup. On the outside, everything looks great. On the inside, it's as if something died. And I made it really simple. Love God with all that you are and love people. But that's not easy. And so to the Pharisees, God's work needed to begin invisibly before it had a visible impact. It it had to begin internally. They had to be cleaned from the inside out before they could ever do anything that was visible or external. And friends, so it is with us. We live in a world that is obsessed with appearance. I mean, this thing that we all use It's great when it's going this way, and I'm taking a picture of you, but when I hit that button that says flip camera and it becomes about me, everything changes. I posture, I filter, I edit, I take five new versions because something was just off. And what Jesus is saying is I'm far more concerned with what's going on on the inside than I am the outside because what's on the inside will eventually affect the outside. So my question to you today, before we get into how do you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the next four weeks. As we talk about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, question, is there an area where you need to confess and where God needs to cleanse? Is it possible that you're no better, that I'm no better than the Pharisees? I know we love to bag on the Pharisees. They're kind of like the Christian punching bag, you know. But friends, we are no better. All of us at some moment have been a Pharisee. All of us are in the future, are in danger of being a Pharisee. And in a world that is obsessed with appearing some way, Jesus' words here could just as much be spoken to us. And so loving others in this commandment begins with receiving God's love and then loving God with all of us. When we need to receive that love and allow it to cleanse us and transform us, and then we respond to that, we love God, and then we begin to love others. But that's, that's where you get the power from, to love those people that are hard to love. You receive that love first. And then you return it to God and you give it to them. So that's why for the next few weeks, we're just going to continue to come back to this idea again and again. That following Jesus requires all of you and it transforms all of you. And next week, we're going to start with the first one, which is loving God with all your heart. So if you're like, man, I need that, I'd encourage you to be here. And if you're like, ah, I don't like that one, go home and watch this message again. (laughs) So 
I got some next steps for you on the back of your handout if you're new to Cornerstone. Here's the first one. This week, I want to encourage you to discuss with a friend the areas where you feel strong and weak when it comes to loving God. I want to hijack your lunch conversation today. So when you go to the restaurant and you order your food and you're in that time between ordering and it arriving, I want you to discuss this. If you came with somebody and you're driving to Prescott Valley, between here and Prescott Valley, I want you to discuss this. If you have family dinner on Sunday night, I want you to come back to dinner and say, hey, discuss this. Because my suspicion is you're going to find a place where you feel strong and you feel weak. And you're going to need some help and encouragement to not just stay where you're strong. So if that person can know, then they know how to help. But if they don't know, it's going to be hard for them to help. Number two, I want to encourage you to confess any areas of unrepentant sin to that friend or your community group. We're uh, evangelicals, Protestants, people of the, the book, which means that we're not Catholic. But one of the things I think we could learn from our more liturgical friends is the value of confession. Most followers of Jesus confess their sins once when they become a Christian and they stop that practice. It's one of the reasons why I think we see so many of our leaders falling morally in public ways. We don't ever practice confession. We forget that we're just as much a sinner and incapable of sin today as we were the day that Josh talked about where you got baptized. So if you don't ever practice confession, I think you're overdue. I think the potential you're setting yourself up for a fall. We should normalize confession because we all have sin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I sinned yesterday. I've probably already sinned today. I certainly will sin before I go to bed. So confess that and find that freedom and that cleansing. And then third, ask God to fill you with his power so you can love him with all of you. I know there's some of you, as you were sitting here today, you're like, Scott, yeah, there's an area over here that I probably could love God better with, but I'm just not good at that. Do you remember seven days ago? Remember we were here? Less pastels today than last week, but you guys still look great. Last week, we sang because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. And Romans says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us. So, friends, please don't sell God and his resurrection power short by saying, you know what? This thing over here, I've never been good at it. I'm not ever going to be good at it. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm just going to avoid it. You're selling short the power that flows within you if you're a follower of Jesus. And if that power can raise Christ from the dead... That power can help you to love God with all of you, including those parts that you've never felt confident about, you've never felt strong in, or you've never leaned into. God wants us to learn to love him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And when we do that, it changes us, changes everybody around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you don't... Um, Ask us to hide part of ourselves from you. You invite us to bring all of ourselves to you and to be sober-minded about the true state of what's happening externally and internally. 
We thank you that, that you make things as, as simple as possible, but you don't dial back the difficulty. We thank you for the reminder that, that when you call us to follow you, that it, it requires all of us, and yet you meet us with strength to transform us. We, we thank you that as you work in our lives, you're not only changing what we do, but you're transforming who we are. We thank you that though we live in a world that is obsessed with appearance, you're obsessed with our hearts. You look at our hearts and you transform us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. We pray that you would build us into a beautiful, amazing, epic masterpiece. And we pray that we would start that project by building only on you. That you would be the cornerstone that we build our whole life on. That we would surrender everything we have to you. And that you would do a great work within us. We pray over the next few weeks that you would help us to love you in ways we never have before. We pray that you'd help us to realize that we are loved in ways we never have before. We pray the fruit of this series would be us loving the people around us in ways we never have before. So build our lives, Jesus, in a way that gives you glory. In your name we pray.